Well, good morning, Hills Church. Uh, my name is Rick, and I'm glad to be with you, whether you're South Lake Campus or West Fort Worth Campus or watching online. I want to say something at the very beginning. My heart is really hurting today. I have never lost a friend closer than Brent Barrow. And so if it doesn't feel like I'm bringing the energy today that these words I speak deserve, please grant me some grace. And speaking of strong words, I'd like to take a moment and could we thank Taylor Walling for the preaching he did last month on the Holy Spirit. And Taylor, if you're watching online, thank you, brother. It was a good word. And I want you to know what I was able to do last month. While Taylor was preaching here, I was visiting our church plants. I got to visit six planters and four different churches. I want to walk you quickly through my month. So it began seeing Jake Barker, who is planting a church we're supporting in Santa Barbara. And then the very next day, I got to be with Lorenzo Smith, who is uh, planting a church, collective church in the film district of L.A., And the very next day, I got to preach at that wonderful church and be encouraged by them. The following weekend, Jamie and I got to go to San Francisco to be with Eddie Williams that we're supporting to plant Bay City Church. They meet in Thurgood Marshall High School there in San Francisco. And uh, we got to hear Eddie preach a really powerful word that day. And in fact, uh, I told Eddie, I need to bring you to the hill soon so the church can be blessed by your gift. Then the next weekend, we were in the Portland area to be with Dave and Lori Vigna that we've been supporting now for three years. Dave, at the age of 55, a father of six, decided he wanted to go plant a church. And uh, they meet in a high school as well. And once a year, they get kicked out. So that day, we had church in the park, and he asked me to preach. And I told everybody, we don't do church outside in Texas in July. But we got away with it in Portland. And you'll notice in the next picture that they are commissioning Kyle and Ruth Davies, who are going to go and plant a new church in the Portland area that we are also going to be supporting. So it was a wonderful month. And I want to tell you, every single one of our planters told me the same thing. That out of all of our partners, nobody is loving us better, checking on us more, being more faithful to us than the Hills Church. And they love it when you on vacation go and visit them. So take a moment and give yourself a hand. You're doing a great job being a church that plants churches. Now, one thing that really impressed me with all of these people is their faith. Because let me tell you, to live in the secular culture they live in with that high cost of living and trust God is a hard thing. And also their focus. You have to be focused to be a church planner. Because here's the thing. You don't have all the resources. You don't have all the manpower. So you have to ask the question, what do we have to do that matters most? What is it we absolutely have to do to consider ourselves a legitimate church? Clarity and alignment are absolutely essential. Uh, Let me illustrate. So one morning, Jamie and I had a a time to ourselves. So we uh, found a hike. We love to hike. And there was a hike uh, near the Pacific Ocean that we told us had spectacular views of the water. 
So we got there and we ascended. We climbed about 3,000 feet. We walked and we walked and we walked. It was a seven-hour hike. And when we finally got to the top of the mountain, this is what we saw. And the point is, no amount of effort can overcome a lack of clarity. Good intentions don't matter if you're not clear what the goal is. That was obvious to me. I saw this video recently I want to show you. I don't think the football coach made it very clear to his boys what they were supposed to do. So for the next few weeks, we are going to focus on what the church needs to focus on. We're going to be living for four weeks in one verse in the Bible. You say you can get four weeks out of one verse. I could get four months out of this verse. Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I would encourage you these next few weeks to read the book of Micah. It's only seven chapters. Here's the background. Michael was a prophet in the latter part of the 8th century B.C. And he lived at a very special time. You know there was a northern kingdom of ten tribes called Israel, a southern kingdom of two tribes called Judah, and they were both being threatened by a force, an empire called the Assyrians. In fact, in Micah's lifetime, the northern kingdom fell and were taken exile, and the southern kingdom was being threatened. So God sent Micah to both nations to help them understand the real reason they were facing such a threat. God wanted them to see clearly that your problem is not the military strength of other nations. It is the moral weakness in your own. Okay? That both the northern and the southern kingdoms were vulnerable to overthrow On the outside. Because of the way they were treating the most vulnerable on the inside. Now that's big. Never once in the book of Micah does God say the reason you're in trouble is because the other people are too strong. It is always you are too weak. And we're going to look at some of those places later this series. But I want to show you, for example, right after... God says, this is what I care about. Micah 6, 8. In the very next verse, look at what God says I'm seeing instead. Fear the Lord if you are wise. His voice calls to everyone in Jerusalem. The armies of destruction are coming. The Lord is sending them. Now, why is God sending armies against his own people? Keep reading. What shall I say? About the homes of the wicked filled with treasures gained by cheating. 
What about the disgusting practice of measuring out grain with dishonest measures? How can I tolerate your merchants who use dishonest scales and weights? The rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and violence. Your citizens are so used to lying their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Now, this is important. Never once in the book of Micah does the prophet criticize the people for not going to the temple. For not bringing their tithes. For not going through the sacrifices and having the offerings. They were still focusing on their religious rituals. But God was focusing on the people that were getting prayed on and getting left out. So God decides to do something very strange. He decides to take his own people to court. Because God takes very seriously... The treatment of anybody and everybody made in his image. So look at now chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains the Lord's accusation. Listen you everlasting foundation of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now have you ever been sued If you have, you know how awful that feeling is. Well, can you imagine getting sued by God? That's what God is saying. I'm taking you to court. And God calls the mountains as his witnesses. Because the mountains have been there for generations long enough to see how this nation has behaved. And long enough to understand and testify to the faithfulness and fidelity of God. So God makes his first argument in court. Verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gagal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what's God doing in court? Here's what he's saying. I've been good. God is making the argument. I have kept my part of the covenant. A little history. Do you remember when you were slaves in Egypt and you could do nothing about it? And I led you out because I was good to you. I gave you strong leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam because I was good to you. Do you remember when that wicked king Balak hired that evil prophet Balaam to curse you? And he opened up his mouth. And I put words of blessing in his mouth to speak over you because I was good. Do you remember that short little journey from Shittim to Gogal? You had to get across the Jordan River. So what did I do? I stopped it and you walked right across into the promised land on dry land. I have consistently and faithfully been Good. Now, why is God starting his case with this argument? It's so critical and it's so important. You ready? Because when we lose focus on how God has treated us, how we think we ought to treat other people starts to get blurry. Well, I just said a lot right there. The next four weeks is built on that one sentence. When we lose focus... Of how God has treated us. How we ought to treat other people will start to get blurry. So the nation knows the case against them is strong. So they respond 
with a plea bargain. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of your own? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, God, what will it take for you to drop the charges? What can we do to get you to throw the case out of court? And did you notice every single thing they offered took place inside the temple? God, will you drop the charges if we ramp up church service? And the problem wasn't their lack of passion. The problem is that their passion is focused on the wrong things. So with all of that as a background, listen one more time to this verse. He has shown you, O mortal. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God is saying, not only have I been good, I define good. I've told you over and over what good is in my definition. Okay? It's justice. Mercy, humility, repeat. That's what I focus on. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Everybody say that with me. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Now, say it out loud like you think you really believe it. Justice. Mercy, humility, repeat. So the English teachers here recognize the name Bennett Cerf and Theo Geisel. Bennett Cerf uh, founded Random House Publishing. Theo Geisel was one of his most popular authors. And they made a bet in 1960. Cerf said, I bet you can't write a children's book and only use 50 words. $50 bet. Well, Theo Geisel took up the bet. Now, you don't know him as Theo Geisel. You know him as Dr. Seuss. And this is the book that he wrote. And it sold over 200 million copies and only uses 50 words. And Dr. Seuss would say that you might think that was a constraint, but actually it produced greater creativity. Because when I had to focus on what was most important it actually made me a better writer that's what God is saying focus on what matters most justice mercy humility repeat God says I've shown you this this is not new but it's going to require constantly renewing your focus what does God call good You see, God is saying it's so much more than just being in the right place. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that it's not good to go to church. Just the opposite. One of our next steps is worship regularly. I have never met a sold-out, devoted follower of Jesus that doesn't regularly worship in a community of faith. 
So I'm not saying that it's no good to go to church. I'm saying there's a way of going to church that isn't good. There's a way of focusing on a place that allows you to have your priorities out of place. And here's what I mean. And you know what I'm about to say is true. That a lot of people seem to think, if I will go to some place and spend an hour or two there and give God His due, then the rest of the week, I can go any place I want and do whatever I want. See, what God wants is for what we do in this place to inform and shape how we're going to live in every place the rest of the week. So I'm going to be, in this series, referring a lot to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, because I think it's the best picture of Micah 6-8 in the Bible. You might remember that story, a man is mugged, left in a ditch, Two religious guys walk right past him and do nothing. And then a Samaritan, a man of a different ethnicity, a despised man, goes and helps him. And it says that he took some oil and some wine and ministered to him. Now, that goes right over our heads. But every first century Jew would have caught what Jesus was saying. Because you used oil and wine in the temple when you worshipped God. And what Jesus is saying is, I want what you use in here to be of use out there. Or what you're doing in here isn't doing any good. Say, oh yeah. Okay. Let me try to say that again. What Jesus is saying is, if what we're doing in here, isn't making any difference out there, then what we're doing in here isn't doing anybody any good. God says good is more than just being in the right place, and it's more than just making the right payments. See, this is what religion does, and it gets blurry. It focuses on how can we buy God off. And every religion does this. These are the pillars. These are the commandments. These are the rituals. These are the things you do to get God to drop the charges. And the reason we like religion like this is because it makes us feel like we're in control of how God feels about us. I paid, therefore I'm accepted. I went to that place and I gave God what He said He wants, right? God just named your price. Calves, rams, oil, kids? How much do you want? And tell me where to go to give it. And this kind of religion makes us feel good because it makes us feel like we're in charge. And because it demands so little of us after we leave this place. But what feels good can be badly out of focus. So Micah had a contemporary named Isaiah. They lived at the same time and they saw the same problems. Let me read to you from the very first chapter of the prophet Isaiah. 
What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings and rams, of the fat of the fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood and bulls of lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to pray through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. Stop just a second. God, everything you say you hate, you told them to do. You told them to bring the offerings and the sacrifices and to do the fasting and to keep the Sabbath and to have the feast. So why are you hating what you told them to do? So you have to go deeper. Keep reading. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. God says you think you can treat people any way you want during the week and then show up in a room and do a few things and I'm cool with that? He has shown you what is good. Justice Mercy, humility, repeat. God says good isn't being in the right place. It's so much more than making the right payments. It is ultimately treating people right. What God considers to be good is focusing on people. And now get this, especially focusing on the people that hardly ever get Focused on. See, this is what made the faith of Israel so different from the other ancient religions. You can study them. The ancient gods identified with the elites. They hung out with and they spoke to the kings and the princes and the generals and the prophets and the powerful. And along comes Israel with this countercultural, completely different vision of how their God saw the world. That the God of heaven actually stands with and for the most marginalized on earth. And God says, I've shown you this. Why are you acting like you're surprised by what I'm saying? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you just four verses. I could show you 104. Just from the Old Testament. Where God has been clear about what He wants. Like in the law, let's look at Deuteronomy 10. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Or, Or look at their hymn book, the Psalms. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. Or what about the Proverbs? You find over and over 
uh, sayings like, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And it's all over the prophets. One example is Zechariah 7. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Now, I hope you never get sued by God. But if you do, don't you dare try to make the case that God has been fuzzy about what He wants. And at Bethlehem, he made it even more clear. Jesus was born among the poor. In his entire life, he specifically identified with the marginalized. He ministered most to the people that were most unnoticed and the church needs to own this the church needs to say this like you my heart's just breaking today about two more mass shootings and I don't know all the details but I read this morning that the young man that killed all those people in El Paso has posted he was out to Prevent a Hispanic invasion. That somehow in his warped mind, he sees people of a different race who speak a different language as that's where you find the enemy. Did no one ever tell him, that's where you find Jesus. Jesus made it very clear what good looks like. Justice and mercy, humility, repeat. So my wife and I had another free morning. We tried again. We found the mountain. We hiked and we hiked. We climbed and we climbed. We got to the top. And this is what we saw. Clarity makes all the difference. So, for the next three weeks, we're going to focus on what God focuses on. We're going to talk about justice and mercy and humility and what that means for the people of God. But before I do that, I've got to make one other thing very, very clear. The Lord has really laid this on my heart. And I hope I can say with clarity what I'm about to try to say. Suppose a family moves into your neighborhood. Suppose they're from another country. They're immigrants. Suppose they don't even speak English. And because you follow Jesus, you are going to do good for them. Praise God. You're going to... You're going to... Show them where the stores are. You're going to help their kids with homework. You're going to help them learn the English. You're going to help them find a job. You're going to take food over when the mother is sick. 
And when the dad gets cancer, you're going to see him in the hospital. And then the father dies. What gospel did you preach to him? You preached a false gospel. You preached a gospel that God saves good people. Now hear me. I don't believe we do good to people with strings attached. Now doing good to people often opens up the door to preach the gospel. We do good to people whether the door ever opens or not. But let's be very, very clear. Good still needs good news. Saved people do good. But doing good is not the way to be saved. We're not right with God because we treat people right. That's just another form of I paid, therefore I am accepted. Hear the word of the Lord on this through the Apostle Paul, Titus 3. When the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, He saved us because of His mercy. It was not because of good deeds we did to be right with Him. He saved us through the washing that made us new people through the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely urgent to me that we're clear on this. The people are not saved by what they do. They're saved by accepting what Jesus has done. And what did Jesus do? Justice, mercy, and humility. He humbled himself and became like us, God in the flesh. He was merciful and pursued sinners. And he became our justice and took our penalty on the cross so that we could receive the righteousness of God. It's not I paid, therefore I'm accepted. It's I'm accepted because Jesus has paid. A lot of you know Chris Hatchett, one of our ministers here. And for many, many years, Chris's father was not a Christian. I asked Chris if traveling through his hometown of Waco, if I could take his dad to supper and share the gospel with him. So C.D. and I went out to a pizza place. You should always share the gospel over pizza. And I just bluntly asked C.D., C.D., are you ready to meet God? He said, yeah. And I said, why? He said, because I'm a good man. I said, I think you are too. Are you a perfect man? Well, no. I said, C.D., God doesn't save good people. God saves forgiven people. And I shared with Chris's dad why only the blood of Jesus can make any man right with God. I believe God watered that seed through many conversations with Chris. And several years later, right here at this campus at that baptistry, C.D. Hatchett surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. God made it very clear at a cross You and I need a Savior. And so in two days, 
In two days, I will, um, I will speak the eulogy over my friend Brent. He's as good a man as I've ever known. And he's in heaven now. Not because he was a good man. But because he trusted Jesus. I want to be so clear on this. Focus on Jesus. He makes us right with God. I want to pray over you. Oh God, I hope I've been clear. This is so important. We want to be a people of justice and mercy and humility. But never in the kind of way that would suggest to anyone that the ultimate answer for our world is Jesus. That the Savior for every single person is Jesus. And so God, I I just believe with all my heart, I'm talking right now to someone that needs to hear this. Holy Spirit, would you plant this seed and would you water it? And would you bring to conviction to anyone I'm speaking to right now? I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Oh God, help us focus on what matters most. And what matters most has a name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.